And uh, if you'd open your Bible to uh, Acts chapter 9, uh, we're going to be reading from verses 32 to 43. And uh, so we'll be, we'll be uh, spending time there in the Word. We're also going to be praying uh, after we read for the, uh, the Parsi people, specifically those who, who live in Iran this morning. The, the reason that uh, I believe it's important that we lift up individual uh, people groups and pray for them, one is that... Um, I am a firm believer that God does things when we pray that he would otherwise not do if we did not pray. Okay, I also I believe in the complete and total sovereignty of God, um, and yet uh, the scriptures teach this idea. I don't know how that makes perfect sense. Uh, I trust that the scriptures uh, are, are correct on that point, and we, we will pray um, knowing that God moves when we pray. Uh, the, the Parsi people... Um, about uh, 19,000 in Iran, about 146,000 worldwide. They are not Muslim. They are, uh, they, they are Zoroastrian. That means they worship a fire god. Um, and the, the, the gospel uh, that they believe, which is no gospel at all, is that if they believe good truth and speak good words and live good lives, they will be rewarded. Um, we understand that as a works-based gospel and believe that that is death because it's life apart from Jesus. Um, they are, um, they, they are uh, in need of the gospel, and so we'll, we'll, we'll pray for them this morning. We're going to read uh, Acts 9, uh, starting at verse 32, and then we will pray and turn to the explanation of God's word. Uh, verse 32 says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing the tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to hear your word read and to pray, Father, that you might teach us and expand our horizons, deepen our, our knowledge of you, deepen our understanding of the gospel, deepen our understanding of your character and our devotion to you, we pray. Lord, uh, we, we come today needy as any other day. Our culture has something to do today, uh, but we 
are here because we want to hear from you. Uh, and so we just pray that as we take this time and we set it aside to focus on the words that are in your book, that you would use it to transform us as we believe it, as we trust in it and obey it. As Peter says, we receive by faith the salvation of our souls. May we be devoted to persevering in faith that you might continue to work in us and transform us. We thank you for Jesus, the foundation, the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. And we thank you for the word, which is our guide and our anchor in the world. Lord, we lift up the Parsi people. We pray that, that this group, Lord, 19,000 in Iran, 146,000 throughout the world. Father, we pray that even now you would be moving hearts to go and reach them. It will be hard. It will be risky. It will take learning a language and leaving home. But you, Lord, we believe are worth it. We believe that, that the gift that you give in Christ, Lord Jesus, we believe your sacrifice on our behalf is worth it. And so, Father, we pray that, that those who know and love you and who are devoted to you would be moved in their heart to take this message. Prepare the field beforehand, Lord, so that when the messengers arrive, the gospel is received. We pray that they would grow in grace and knowledge of you. Father, bless this time in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you will be confronted today as you watch the Super Bowl with a thousand reminders uh, that you are not at peace, uh, that something is wrong, that, that you don't have sufficient uh, insurance coverage on your house, that, that your car stinks and you need a new one, uh, that, that your, your spouse, be he uh, male or be she female is not attractive enough, good enough, does not have the right appliances. All of these things will be thrust at you as you watch and absorb the commercials in the Super Bowl. And you will then be offered solutions to these problems. Uh, if you sit down and consume an entire bag of cheese curls or eat these particular tacos or drink this soft drink or alcoholic substance or invest your money here with these people, you will be happy and at peace. Um, but if you have ever eaten those tacos and in the volume which they sell them and suggest that you eat them, you know that, that at, at the end of that experience there is misery. <laughs> right? You, you know this. Uh, you know that, that what's being offered is false and is temporary and does not leave lasting peace. Uh, one of the reasons that I think that Luke recorded these two episodes, which I, I, will, I will confess, uh, I, I view them as kind of on the doorstep of, of big things happening in Acts chapter 10, and I was, I was content to just say, we read those passages. Let me say two things. Somebody got healed. Somebody got raised. Moving on. Um, I, 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 I confess, I, I thought, let's just move on. But I think that Luke put these words here for a purpose, and so we ought to focus on them. For Luke, and therefore for God, the gospel is about shalom, about peace, and about being truly at peace. Uh, not just 
a lack of conflict around you, but a whole-bodied restoration, a, a fullness, a, a cessation of struggle and, and rest at peace with God and man and the world. And Luke records this here that we might know true peace and look beyond the kind of peace that the world offers to us, which you will be put upon with today if you, if you watch the Super Bowl. Um, you will be tempted to consider short-term routes to peace, peace which does not last. Luke presents us with a different perspective today. Uh, we see at the beginning of this passage, Peter, uh, when we last saw Peter, you know, uh, meanwhile, back at the Bat Cave, right, we last saw Peter, he was in Samaria, he, he showed up after Philip had, had done some preaching among the Samaritans, and they began to come to Christ, and, and we've seen Peter, he's been preaching, baptizing, doing the apostle thing, living out the mission of the apostles within the church. Uh, his mission happens to be what our church's mission is, I believe. Uh, we state as our mission, we put it up there a lot, our, our goal is to know Jesus and to make him known. Uh, not just focusing on ourselves and growing spiritually, but sharing that gospel with others. Uh, Peter has a specific call, which I believe uh, is our call as well. It's Peter's particularly. His goal, he was told, uh, or his, his mission would be to unlock the keys to heaven, uh, to unlock the kingdom, to let people in. And so we see him on the day of Pentecost sharing the gospel as the Holy Spirit comes and Jews come to Christ. And then we, we see Peter unlocking the door in Samaria as half Jews come in, uh, Gentile Jews enter into the church. And, and we're going to see in chapter 10 the gates swung wide as all kinds of people enter in. Um, that is Peter's specific ministry, but we have a similar ministry. We ought not just be looking at growing our individual church, but instead be concerned and consumed with the health of the whole kingdom. Two missions here. We, we're going to see this in, in Peter's life. To know Jesus and to make him known, but secondly, to increase the size and health of God's church everywhere. Increasing both size and health of God's church everywhere. God's not just concerned with what's happening in Salisbury, although he loves Salisbury and is concerned. He cares about what's happening on Delmarva, and in Maryland, and in the United States, and throughout the whole world. And so we ought to be concerned as well and look for opportunities to partner with other believers and to help as we have been called to, to increase the size and health of God's church, as we know Jesus and make him known. Two ways in which we see this lived out in the passage. First is in a demonstration that God is a God of power. We see this in verse 32 through 35. Uh, Peter is doing his thing, strengthening the church. It says he went here and there among them all. That means he's kind of like, oh, where are their churches? Where are their believers? And he's just kind of roaming around, going here and going there, sharing, preaching, teaching, strengthening. Um, he visits the church in a place called Lydda. Okay, if, if you're looking at a map, and here is uh, the ocean, and here is the Sea of Galilee, and here is the Dead Sea, and here's the Jordan River, right? And Jerusalem is here. Lydda 
uh, and Joppa are to the northeast. It's a, it's a region where, where perhaps the gospel has spread, but they've not spent a lot of time preaching and teaching there. They've been in Judea and in Samaria, but not over here. And so Peter's kind of making his way over here. And as he goes among these saints, he finds this man, a very sick man, sick with a, a particular illness that's kept him in bed. He's paralyzed. He's got some kind of uh, difficulty uh, walking, moving. Um, He's, he's been that way for eight years. Peter uh, comes to this man. I believe he was uh, just a guy, not a believer, not a disciple. Notice in verse 36, when we come across a disciple, it's pointed out specifically that they're a disciple. This guy is just called a man, uh, not a disciple. So he's not a believer. And as Peter encounters him, paralyzed, he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Not Jesus Christ is going to heal you, uh, but Jesus Christ, the way it's written in the Greek, uh, gives the sense of, of Jesus in this moment heals you. Get up and make your bed. The scriptures say immediately he rose. Let me point out something about the scriptures. Uh, if we were writing this today, we'd be like, um, and, and and, and, you know, and his, and his legs became fuller. Uh, and, and color came into his cheeks. And he ate. And, and several doctors visited with him and took charts. And, you know, there'd be all this emphasis on the results and the man himself. Maybe there'd be a biography attached to it. You know, now he's going to collect seashells and pursue a career in stenography. You know, or phlebotomy or something. We'd have all this focus. The Bible is interesting in the fact that it is not obsessed with the miraculous. Miracles just kind of happen, and then the story moves on. Do you notice that? And immediately he rose. And then it says in verse 35, and everybody saw him and they turned to the Lord. That's not a lot of emphasis on the miraculous. The miracle happens, and then the gospel goes forward. But that, in my mind, is the point. What Peter is concerned with, what his focus is, is not setting up camp and setting up some giant healing ministry. Instead, his focus is to glorify Jesus. With no authority focused on himself, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. He gives the glory to Jesus. He is the source of the power and the focus of the miracle, and he heals him through the power of Christ. This is interesting. If you look at John chapter 5, verse 8, you'll see Jesus finding a man. He's been laying at the side of a pool for 38 years, waiting for healing to occur. And Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? The guy makes a couple of excuses, like, I can't get into the water fast enough. And Jesus says, well, just get up, take your bed, walk. And it says, at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Interesting that Peter, in performing this particular miracle, imitates Jesus. Almost to the word. Isn't that interesting? Jesus finds that man whom he healed later in the temple after some controversy about the fact that this guy was carrying his bed on a Sabbath day. Everybody's like, you can't do that. It's the day off. You know, don't carry your bed. Um, you're not allowed to carry your bed. He's like, I'm healed. I'm healed. And they're like, put that bed down. Stop. You're breaking the rules. 
you know? And then, and then they're like, why are you carrying your bed? And he's like, I don't know, some guy healed me. I don't know who he is, but I'll turn him into you if, you know? You can go back and look at our John sermons a while ago. Um, and, and Jesus uh, has got some harsh words for this guy. He comes up to him in verse 14 um, of, of John chapter 5, and he finds him, and he says to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, otherwise something worse may happen to you. The focus here in the Gospel of John is not on the fact that it is this amazingly wonderful thing that this man was healed. The healing is a sign, and it is wonderful. But the healing that takes place physically in this man means nothing if there is not some spiritual transformation or change. I believe that we in the West, we tend to either avoid the issue of the miraculous or we obsess about it. A couple comments on the miraculous. First, miracles mostly in the Bible follow particular events. You'll find them in three big chunks. Moses and Joshua, lots of miracles, right? Elijah, Elisha, I can never remember which one comes first, lots of miracles. If there's some, like, saying that one of you, like, advanced Christians know, like, you know, the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Go Eat, Peach Cake, General Electric Power Company, and you can teach me to remember Elijah or Elisha, which ones come first, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, three big chunks, Moses and Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, and then Jesus and the apostles. Lots of demons that just suddenly show up in the scriptures when Jesus is around. And then miracles tend to taper off. That's just the way things work in the Bible. But let me also say this. I'm not going to be like, oh, do miracles still happen today? Look over there, you know. Like, uh, let me change the subject. Why don't more miracles happen today? I don't know. I don't know why. But I don't see any reason why God would not continue to heal people. At the same time, let me say this. If we're obsessed with why miracles don't happen a lot today, what do we really want from God? Do we want him to do tricks for us? God, please make some money. For, for what? So that we can spend it on stuff? Tacos, iPads, things which will make us happy, which won't really make us happy. I mean, if, if my children got what they wanted, they would eat entire bags of chocolate chips every single day for breakfast, but they, their, their eyes would turn brown, you know? Like, they'd, they'd, they'd get sick, and you'd be like, stop, you know? You don't give a kid everything that they want and everything that they ask for because it's not good for them. God is not a clown. He does not exist to make us balloon dogs <laughs> to entertain us by giving us parking spots. But maybe more people would believe if there were more miracles. Luke chapter 16, verse 30, a man in, in a story that Jesus is telling, a man dies and goes to hell. And as he is in torment, he thinks about his family and he says, send someone to warn my family. He's speaking to Abraham, who's the symbolic uh, judge and, and, and ruler uh, in the afterlife who can help his family. And, and he says to Abraham, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, my family will repent. And Abraham says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't respond to the word of God, which they have, and they can hear the word which creates faith, the word which tells who God is and what our problem is and what the solution is, if they don't respond to that, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In the excellent 
movie as I remember it, but I haven't seen it for years, so don't take this as an endorsement of that movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There is a wonderful scene in which George Clooney is about to die and who goes through this amazing repentance. But then something happens which delivers him from death. If you've not seen it, I'm going to ruin it for you, so you should have watched it years ago. Don't blame me. As soon as he experiences deliverance, he then says, uh, it must have been atmospheric pressure, you know, uh, the planets were in alignment. You know, and he comes up with all these excuses for why God did not deliver him, and he goes back to his life of, 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 of pursuing his own pleasure. If we don't hear Moses and the prophets, if people do not hear the word of God and the message of salvation and then repent, neither will they be convinced if they see miracles. Let's not focus on miracles so much as if we want a show or we deserve God doing tricks in our life. Notice that Peter lives like his master. Peter is doing Jesus stuff, and he's been doing lots of Jesus stuff, like preaching and teaching and persevering and enduring and resisting uh, when people persecute him and acting right in difficult situations and doing the hard task of pastoring and leading the church and, and disciplining sinners within that church. The easy part for most of us is using power. That's easy. It's easy to, to spend money if you've got it. It's easy to force your will on other people or to fire people or make decisions. That's the easy stuff. The hard part is being faithful over the long haul. Peter was a master at taking control. Do you remember his, his dramatic scene? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. God's given you this revelation. And then he's like, and now that someone has pointed out that I am the Christ that I am the Messiah, let me tell you what's going to happen. And says he starts talking about how he's going to die, how he's going to go to Jerusalem. And Peter's like, that's never going to happen to you. Stop. And he takes control of the situation. Jesus, then after saying he was blessed, now says, you are Satan. Get behind me. Get away with your plans and your hopes and your dreams. Right? Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross. Right? And they come to take him in the garden. And Peter breaks out his sword. And he's like, you're not taking Jesus. In an attitude of being more spiritual than Jesus, he then starts to try to cut this guy's head off. Uh, Luke, interestingly, points out that he cuts off his ear lobe, uh, not his entire ear, which means he wasn't swinging like this. He was swinging like this, you know, trying to hack off that, that head there. Not, not just kind of like, I will slice you in half. Um, he was taking control of that situation. He was not going to lose his Jesus. But he has learned that the better part is being obedient and faithful and imitating Christ. And so he comes into this situation, he sees Aeneas, and he does what Jesus did. He lives like Jesus. His point is not to gain glory for himself and to do tricks for people. But to minister like his master. Why is God healing this non-believer? Right? You know, what has this guy done for God? Uh, why, why is God doing this for this man, for Aeneas? Um, God is kind. Uh, maybe, it, maybe, maybe that goes without saying, but I, 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 don't think it, I don't think it does. I think it needs to be said. God is kind. I think a lot of people think of God as having this perpetual frown. You know, kind of what I do with my forehead a lot. 
You know, God's got these big, bushy, white eyebrows in our mind, and his, his forehead has got massive amounts of wrinkles in it, you know, and he's, he's got a pen and a really long sheet of paper, and he's like, up, oh, sinned again, sinned again, sinned again, sinned again. He's just keeping this enormous record. And then at the right moment, when the angle's right, when you're like, when you're turned and you're, you're slightly off balance, he's just going to throw a lightning bolt and blow you up. And that's, that's our perception of, of God. But that's not who God is. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 30 about the character of God. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. We spend so much time trying to, to, to erase the judgment of God or the requirements of God or we're trying to adjust the commands of the Christian life so that we can be living it perfectly, you know. This is kind of like uh, being assigned the job of tightrope walking in the circus and kind of just like stretching the rope out on the ground and being like, look at me. You know, I'm good at this. We just redefine the Christian life so we can't fail. Or we erase the commands of God and we're like, oh, this is okay and that's okay and everything's good, no problems, no stress, you know, all love, love, love and happiness all the time because we fear the judgment of God. But if we would just look at this God who judges in righteousness and who pronounces that all of us apart from Christ are lost, we would see that if we just acknowledge it and we say, woe is me, I am undone, I am a sinner, I am in great need of righteousness because I have none of my own, we would find Jesus standing right there to save us. And it's better than redefining life. It's better than rearranging everything and making it our own way. Don't you get tired of, of doing this in your mind? I, I do this. I forget the gospel and I reinvent it. I'm like, here's how I'm serving God and here's where my points are. and here's. It's like, forget that. Jesus is good and kind, and if you will repent and leave your sins at the foot of the cross, he will give you his righteousness. That's good. Peter understands the purpose of miracles. Miracles are, are like saran wrap versus tinfoil in the fridge if they're done right, right? We, we wrap things in saran wrap. Tinfoil is forbidden on bowls and containers in our fridge. For the simple reason that you can't tell what's in there, right? You know, what is that? Is it rice? Is it macaroni? Is it beans? You got to open it up and you're like, oh, yeah, look at that. That's old, you know. <laughs> when you use something that's transparent, you can see through it. You're like beans. I don't want beans. Meat. I want meat. Give me the meat, right? That's why you use transparent containers. Miracles are not the end goal. We're supposed to see through them to the merciful, kind God and see the gospel and not be stopped up by the event. We're not to chase miracles. The result of this is that, is that the gospel spreads through the city of Lydda and through the region of, of Sharon. And bedridden Aeneas is now in the church walking around at peace with God and at peace in the world. Second, we see the God of comfort. I got more notes on this, but I, I, gotta, I gotta move, so I don't know what's gonna happen over the next couple minutes. Um, there's a woman uh, in, in the city of, what city is she from? In Joppa, um, and, and she's from the city named 
Joppa, and uh, this is a woman who, who lives a good and godly life. She places a proper emphasis on, on charity. Um, she has a limited ministry because I don't think she's got tons of money, but she is kind and she does good and practical good works with what she's got. She makes clothes for those who need them. Uh, the, 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 the immediate thought that comes to my mind is that she's living, like 931 says, in the fear of the Lord. She's emphasizing uh, material goods in her life properly. She's showing charity to those on the edge of society. It's a slow and steady ministry, not filled with a lot of flash, just good. It's just doing good work regularly, small but good work. Matthew Henry, who uh, probably lived uh, just a little bit before Downton Abbey times, um, he, he writes this. He says that she is a woman who is always doing good as a tree full of fruit. She was full of good works, it says. Then he says, many are full of good words who are empty and barren in good works. This is a faithful woman. Being faithful in ministry. Well, the scripture says that she dies. They find out that Peter's near, and after they wash her and prepare her and lay her in the upper room, they send for Peter, please come without delay. We don't want to lose her. Can you come and please do something? He arrives. They take him to the upper room. I, I, I've always had this image of this story. It says, all the widows stood, behind, stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that she had made while she was with them. I always imagine them like holding blue jeans and t-shirts and stuff like, look at these clothes, look, she made them. But then it occurs to me, studying this passage, that they were probably wearing the clothes, right? They're probably, this is probably what they wore each and every day. And they're saying like, as, as, as person after person comes and is telling the story of who this woman is, they're saying, look, she made me this. She made me that. I'm wearing this, you know, because she put it on me. Now, for my fellow Downton Abbey fans, uh, hear this quote in the, the voice of Carson the butler and think of Footman. Um, think, think of this. This is Ma Ma Martin, sorry, Matthew Henry again. Uh, he says, it is more honorable to clothe the company of decrepit widows. Love that. It is more honorable to clothe the company of decrepit widows with necessary clothing than to clothe the company of lazy footmen with expensive uniforms, who perhaps behind their backs will curse those who clothe them. For goodness is true greatness and will pass better in the account shortly. What does that mean? Here is a woman who is ministering to and attending to those, not those above her in society's stature, who can benefit her somehow, but finding the bottom rung of society and helping those people, people who cannot pay her back. In Luke 14, verse 12, Jesus tells a man who invited him to a dinner party, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, when you're seeking to bless people, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. James 2, 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, 
Be warm and be filled in the name of Jesus. Let's just add that in. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Here is a woman who does good to those who truly need it, not just doing good to those who can benefit her. And so when she dies, she leaves a vacuum. And people don't know what they'll do without her. Now, her name is Tabitha, which translates, means Dorcas. Every single time I read this, I smirk and smile because I think she is ineptly named. Whoever named her Dorcas, it's just like, man, you cursed this little girl. She probably got made fun of in grade school. People took her lunch from her and threw her books and stuff, you know, Dorcas. But here's the thing. She is ineptly named because to be a dork... Dorks are those who have social ineptitude and are obsessed. You know, they don't know how to handle themselves. They're like, you go to their house and they're like, let me show you all of my baseball cards. And like two, two hours later, they're still like, and this is so-and-so, and these are his statistics. And then they read you all the statistics and you're like, ah! They don't, they don't get the social clue. Now, dweebs <laughs> are smart and socially inept. Nerds are in the center of the chart, and, and they, uh, on the Venn diagram, they are intelligent, socially inept, and obsessed. These are people who have processes and charts. They're just like, they're, they're kind of lost. But if you, if you are on the, the proper side of the chart, the proper place, you have intelligence and ability. You know what needs to be done, and you are obsessed with doing it. All Christians should be like this. This is the geek category. We should be obsessed with Jesus and obsessed with doing right, with doing the good works which God has prepared beforehand for us and, and be f being filled up with God's goodness and graciousness toward us. We are then devoted to good works, enough to leave a massive gap when we die. I think she should be named Geekus, <laughs> not Dorcas, poor lady. Anyway, sorry, that was just an aside. Moving, moving on. Uh, Coming into this place, I think Peter was probably moved with, with, with tender affection for this woman, perhaps who he'd never known, and he realizes the desperate situation of these widows and the fact that the church would be impoverished for lack of her. He had been there when Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus replied back to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha's like, yeah, 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 I know that. He'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus cuts her off and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks the pointed question, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Brothers and sisters, death is sweet for the believer. Death is sweet because here's what happens. Once we are switched on by God, once our life begins, we are internal in one direction. We, we have a fixed starting point, but there is no ending point for us. We can either live forever eternally with God, or we can live forever in a condition which cannot be called life, which is dying forever, separated from all of the blessings of God in hell. Separated from him. We want nothing to do with him and his lordship. He'll have nothing to do with us in eternity. 
death for the believer means that we move from this life to the next life, and there is nothing that touches us that can be called death. Just a little bit of suffering. Temporary light, Paul says, which cannot be compared to the weight of what will be given to us in glory. Death for the believer is promotion. Each and every one of us needs to understand, and maybe I, maybe I experience this more because I attend funerals or I bury people as part of my job, but it, it occurs to me that many people do not face the reality of the fact that they are going to die, especially if they keep drinking all that soda and eating all that football food all the time. Those people in those commercials who are chowing down on all those hot wings and stuff, they will go first. But sooner or later, it will be you. And many times this hits Christians and they're like, how did this happen? And it's like, haven't you read the first couple chapters of your Bible that this happens to all of us? It happens to all of us. Why doesn't God do something? He is doing something. He is. I'm probably going to take 10 more minutes. Right? I've got, got two things to say. Let me, let me say this. I was taking a class called Progress of Redemption. That's what I'm teaching in Sunday school. And... Um, I was taking it by, by video and, and working through the class, and, and at, at, at any point during this class, you could fill out a form called Request to Interact with Professor, right? And then you'd make an appointment and go and meet this guy. And I was on campus, but I was trying to make up some credits at, at a, a lesser cost, you know, and uh, so I was watching the videos, and I never met my professor, Dr. Jack Lehman. Um, but, but early on, he said on the videos, if you have any questions, just ask me. And so I made a little Word document. I started typing up all my questions. I thought I'm going to get them all in one afternoon, um, you know, when I, when I meet up with him. And he said during this class, he said, because I understand this, the, the storyline of Scripture, and those of you who are in class, in that Progress Redemption class, you get it. You're like, yes, this is what God is doing. God's, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to go there, what God is doing. You, you, you know it. Um, he said, I can explain any single story in the Bible in terms of God's global purpose. And I was like, yeah, right. Ha. And so I started making this list of all the stories that I wanted him to explain. Big, long list. And I brought it, and I was like, I am armed and ready. And I, I sit down, and we're talking. I said, you said you can explain any story, right? And he says, yeah. And I said, and you can connect it to the global purpose of God. Yeah. I mean, I'm a punk kid at this point. I'm still a punk kid, but I'm like, I'm older and graying. Um, but, but I read him 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 4. The prophet goes with the sons of the, the prophets. They come to the Jordan River and they start cutting down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. A miracle. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. And that's the story. And I say to my professor, okay, connect that to God's global purpose. And this is his answer. And he pulled me up short, and I didn't ask any more questions. He said, God cares about the little things. God cares about the little things. You know, churches are famous, and Christians are famous for wanting bigger churches. More people, more money, bigger buildings, more, 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 more. Miracles, power. But what we do is we draw in folks 
And do we really see them as individual people with needs and cares and desires and dreams and hopes and hurts? Do we see them as means to an end, and the end being bigger, better? Or is our focus as more and more come in that those individuals would meet Jesus and grow deep in him? Think about the Jesus who lived, who cared. He tells a parable about a little woman who lost a coin. You know, he's not telling a story about some huge banker running some business. He's like, imagine a woman loses a coin. People are celebrating their big offerings, and a, a poor widow comes and puts in two small copper coins, and no one even sees her. She drops them in there. They don't even add up to a single penny, the scripture says. Well, they make a penny. I see a penny. Most of the time, I just ignore it, unless I'm, I'm thinking like I just paid my bills, and then I'm like, oh, I need as many of those as I can, and I'll find as many friends and put them all together. The disciples uh, Jesus points her out and he says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing. He notices the small things. When he's describing the punishment and the pain that will come on Jerusalem in the tribulation, he says this. This is an odd statement. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. We, if, if it were me, I would be thinking, like, does Jerusalem have an evacuation plan? You know, like doomsday prepper style stuff. Jesus is like, it's going to be really hard for young moms. He cares about the little things. And so every now and again, I think he gives us a sign. Jesus talks to Martha and then to Mary. And as he stands outside of Lazarus's tomb, he weeps. They take away the stone Jesus prays, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. He'd done this before. He met a little girl, and he said to her, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, arise. Peter says the same thing, although this time he changes one letter, and he substitutes this woman's name, Tabitha kum, I say to you, Tabitha, arise. And she rises from the dead. The point is not that the resurrection takes place. Because Aeneas would die. And Tabitha had to die again. And so did Lazarus. Can you imagine? Lazarus is like, why am I here? Why did you bring me back? i got to get sick again. i got to die. Thank you, Jesus. No, really, I'm much appreciative. But sisters, like next time, please, leave me in heaven. It's better there. You know? My feet don't hurt. You know, I don't get sick. I'm never hungry. But the point is that Jesus can make things new. He can raise all. He can heal every disease. He can cure every problem. But his focus is saving souls. If he made everything right, think of the multitudes who would not be saved. Jesus, seated on the throne in Revelation 21, verse 5, says this, Behold, I am making all things new. He has the power to do it, and he's changing the world through the preaching of the gospel. And that's what happens here. The women rejoice. They are excited that she is presented alive. And notice what it says in verse 42. It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Interesting that in his movie, The Passion of the Christ, 
Mel Gibson takes those words, behold, I am making all things new, and he puts them on Jesus' lips as he is carrying the cross to its place. I think that's a, a fantastic spiritual insight. It's the death of Jesus that makes things right. It's the resurrection of Jesus that makes things right. It's the application of his righteousness to our sinful lives that heals us, not the presence of miracles and power in our lives. Jesus is what makes things right. Let's not get in the way, preventing people from, from seeing what they really need to see, and that's the example, the power, the salvation, and the glory of our Savior. Let's not let lack or the presence of miracles clutter it all up. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help us to keep these things in perspective. Lord, you are the God of power and you are the God of comfort. You care about the little things and you are making all things new. May we not put the cart before the horse and focus on all things being perfect now. May we instead focus on proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming peace with God instead of peace with the world or peace with the natural order. May we seek to, to share your name and your fame with others that they may grow to love you for what you've done on the cross and in your resurrection. May we not mistake the lack of goodies and, 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 and presence and miraculous things as evidence that you are not there. Lord, you're doing the important thing and proclaiming you and pointing people away from us and away from prosperity and away from uh, uh, peace in this world at the expense of peace with you. May we forsake that. May we point people to you, the source of true peace, the one who's making all things new. Lord, we thank you for these stories. We pray that the words that have been spoken will take root in our heart and will yield good fruit. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as we close in prayer, if you'd like to come forward and pray, uh, feel free to do that. You can pray with somebody who's standing up front here, or you can, you can pray uh, by yourself. Uh, but let's, let's close in prayer with this song. This last song, it's, uh, it's been a while since we played it. Um, the song's called Come in My Courts. It, uh, comes from Psalm 96, 7. It says, uh, O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize the Lord as glorious and strong. Give to the Lord what he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his courts. <clears throat> Welcoming The way is open